0: All right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. Where the fuck has my podcaster been? I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser known true crime stories. <laughs> Welcome back, all. I hope everybody's okay. I'm feeling amazing. Spring is springing here in anywhere USA. Call off the search parties. I'm fine. I celebrated my international players' holiday aka my new year aka my kimber day aka my two fish season in march the whole month i really did enjoy it it was really nice celebrating life you know and not focusing on death i needed a a quick little refresher and then i took the entire month of april to do research to come back and give you guys this super loaded episode on the comeback post spring brick and whatnot so i love you i hope you guys aren't mad at me too much um i'm good i recalibrated i hope you guys have too i want to thank you all for returning and thank you so much for spreading the word about what had happened your listenership always means the world to me know this i promise you even though like i go quiet like that's just me like that's just me i'm i'm not going to I'm not your talkatron podcaster who's gonna just like talk all the time to y'all like if I don't have content to give you that's just not me I'm sorry I thought you kind of would figure that out by now since we're like two years into this relationship but if you're new that's what's going on I'm not ghosting you guys promise you seriously I spent a month working on this so I'm so happy to finally be here with all of my conceptualized and scripted work for you also I would like to say thank you all for continuing to come back you guys are really the best now it's time to say thank you thank you thank you you're far too kind thank you thank you thank you it's your shout out time what it do Dallas Houston Austin San Antonio and El Paso Texas stay classy San Diego, Los Angeles, Sacramento, Compton, and San Francisco, California. How goes it, Denver? Ooh, your abs. Denver, Commerce City, Grand Junction, Colorado Springs, and Greeley, Colorado. I see you, Hotlanta. Ooh, y'all got a Freaknik documentary coming out that's got all the aunties and uncles in a tizzy waynesboro savannah alpharetta and canton georgia welcome back chicago libertyville aurora deerfield and schaumburg illinois good day queensland victoria brisbane perth and tasmania hello england scotland wales and northern ireland so good to see you leinster munster and conal and ulster is it ulster i'll get it i promise you ireland my listeners in ireland correct me please and thank you i'm asking please Norway, the pleasure is all mine. And thank you again, friends in Cape Town, Johannesburg, Durban, Pretoria, and Orange Free State, South Africa. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your likes, shares, and subscribes. Don't forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group and follow the other social accounts that I don't really do jack shit on anymore. I'm sorry. I'll get to it. I promise. Eventually. I'm a work in progress. Absolutely feel free to drop me a few lines email me if there's any case that you're interested in having me cover or what have you I will say this when I close my laptop I close it down until I'm ready to start working and so sometimes like there's a lapse and I was so focused on the research for this particular episode I have not checked the what had happened email yet but I will do so when I finish recording and get back to you if anybody's actually reached out this go. Um, You guys are really great, though. It's really nice interacting with you. Um, Anywho, all of the links and references can be found in the description box below, per usual. Last episode, I discussed how fragile some family dynamics can be when Allison Hines was murdered by her brother-in-law. As I said before, for today's episode, I spent about a month gathering information um, because cases are super hard to come by. Today's compilation, I'll be telling you about what had happened at an alarming rate to indigenous women. As the granddaughter of an indigenous man, it is extremely important to me to lend my voice and to help raise awareness to this massive problem that disproportion- disproportionately affects my indigenous cousins. One of the first missing, murdered indigenous women that we knew of to date was laid to rest in 1617 before her 21st birthday in England. An ocean separated her from her family land, and birth of her people, who requested the return of her remains so she could be buried with her tribe. As a younger girl, sexual assaults against indigenous children and women became prevalent at the hands of the English colonists who had begun arriving in their area. As the girl grew older and the menacing attacks continued, her father, the chief of her tribe, feared her his daughter would fall victim to the colonists harming indigenous women. His daughter, now about 16 years old, was married with a baby. One day, the chief's worst fears came to fruition when his beloved daughter was kidnapped. The young woman was handed, handed off her, her baby to the women of her tribe as she was whisked away to a ship that would eventually be bound for England. When her husband returned to the tribe's village, the colonists were waiting and they killed him. The English captor, a captain, threatened the chief and his tribe with a violent attack if he didn't stop trying to rescue his daughter. The captain told the chief his daughter would only be away for a short time and gave the chief a copper pot as a gift which would actually signify the blatant disregard for the young woman's life, as the captain actually claimed the copper pot was a trade for the young woman. While held captive amongst the colonists, the girl was raped and abused by the men who abducted her. The girl was highly encouraged to convert to Christianity, adopt a Christian name, marry and procreate with one of her abductors when they sailed to england the young woman was paraded among the elite and exploited as a quote, civilized savage in hopes of obtaining more investors to help fund the development and construction of jamestown homesick and tired of being exploited the young woman wanted to return home and her travel arrangements were set for the spring of 1617. During this time, she was said to have been in perfectly good health, so it was was extremely alarming that before she could sail back to Virginia, she would vomit after eating dinner with her husband and die in England. Although her family requested her remains be returned so that she could be buried with her tribe, Her husband had her remains buried at a church in England. Her name was Amonute, but she was best known as Pocahontas. The true story of her life, although centuries old, is relevant today as indigenous men and women have been under attack at a disproportionately high rate. More than four of five indigenous women have experienced violence, which would be 84.3%. More than half have experienced sexual violence at 56.1%. More than half have been physically abused by their intimate partner at 55.5%. Less than half have been stalked in their lifetime at 48.8%. Indigenous girls and women are murdered at ten, at 10 times higher than all ethnicities. Murder is the third leading cause of death for indigenous women. Indigenous women are 1.7 times more likely than Anglo women to experience violence. Indigenous women are two times more likely to be raped than Anglo women. And the murder rate of indigenous women is three times higher than Anglo women. The majority of murders are committed by non-Indigenous people on Indigenous-owned land. This causes a serious disconnection, lack of communication, and jurisdictional issues between local, state, federal, and tribal law enforcement, hindering most investigations from even taking place. Those factors are what made it extremely difficult for me to to find cases to compile an extensive compilation for you. But I was able to find five. There were a few more, but I was able to find five so that I would cover tribes in throughout the U.S. and one tribe in Canada that is a part of the First Nations. (sighs) Oh. So beginning in 1970, an alarming number of indigenous girls and women began going missing and on or were discovered murdered along a 450 mile corridor of highway, Highway 16, that runs through Prince George and Prince Rupert, British Columbia, Canada. The best description I found came from an article written by Eva Holland in 2015. She is absolutely in the references. Quote, two major arteries run through smithers. The first, the line that was once known as the Grand Trunk Pacific Railway, was pounded into the ground right behind the Wilson home, bearing freight trains from Memphis and Chicago and Detroit across the prairies and over the Rocky Mountains through the thinly populated B.C. interior to the port town of Prince Rupert on the coast. The second, shadowing it, is Highway 16, a northern leg of the Trans-Canada officially known as the Yellowhead. It diverges from the main route in southern Manitoba and angles slowly north through Saskatoon, Edmonton, and Jasper before crossing the mountains into B.C. There it zigzags through the area's industrial hub, Prince George and then travels more than 700 kilometers through farmland into deepening forests and rising peaks before dead-ending at the Prince Rupert ferry terminal winding west from Prince George highway 16 links a series of small communities logging and sawmill towns mostly and first nation villages Vanderhoof Fraser Lake Burns Lake Houston Telqua, Smithers, Morristown, Hazelton, Terrace, and finally Prince Rupert. Short hops up and down the highway from town to town are built into the local social calendar. On this night, there were dances and barbecues, drawing Smithers residents to Hazelton and Morristown, and young people were without ride without a ride of their own often stick out their thumb to get where they're going odds are the driver who picks them up and drives them deeper into the evergreen dense hills won't even be a stranger since 1970 there have been over 80 known victims some who were murdered by serial killers others by transients and some by people they may have known Ramona Lisa Wilson was born February 15, 1978, the youngest of six children. She was called her mother's sweetheart baby. Her mother, Matilda, a part of the Gixson Nations, raised her family in Smithers, British Columbia. When Matilda was born in 1950, she was the seventh of 14 children. At the age of five, she was placed into a residential school, which intended to, quote, kill the Indian in the child and reprogram the children to grow without any connection with their culture. Matilda, along with countless other children in these schools, suffered various forms of abuse and mistreatment from the clergy members running them. When she was a teenager, she was allowed to leave school. When she did, she married young and began having children with her husband. Tragically, by the age of 23, she was a widow with five children. When Matilda was 30, she began a relationship, and the two desperately wanted to have a child together. Although she was told that she would most likely never have any more children, at the age of 37, she found herself pregnant with the child she'd wanted and tried so hard for, Ramona. Growing up, Ramona was said to have had a bubbly, outgoing personality. Ramona loved to joke and was adored. She wrote beautiful poetry and had nightmares as a girl that would have her scurrying to the security of her mother's bed, where the two would talk and Ramona would fall asleep safely. At the age of 12, she told her mother she wanted to be the first one in the family to attend university and become a psychologist. In 1994, 16-year-old Ramona could be found at work washing dishes at chain restaurant Smitty's or playing outfield on the local baseball team that was sponsored by the Native Friendship Center. Ramona even had a boyfriend who lived halfway between Smithers and Hazleton and the village of Morristown. All was well. In fact, it was exceptionally cheerful in the Wilson home on the weekend of June 11th annually the teenagers of smithers come together to celebrate at the huge graduation party and there's like various parties that pop off you know intermittently like all over the place like all these parties happening but then there's also like wimpy Gold party and like it's great so you just like go and you just like do the thing right it's graduation whoop right pardon me i needed a drink and I will say I do have allergies so I'm I, I'm sorry if I'm a little nasally today. <clears throat> so Matilda recalled Ramona being in high spirits the evening of Saturday, June 11th, 1994 as she sang and danced around the house while getting ready for her night of partying with her friends. Ramona, her mother and her brother ate takeout lasagna and watched TV together. Matilda said that Ramona left the home on Railway Avenue at 9.45 p.m. to meet with her bestie, Crystal Grinky, wearing a purple sweatshirt, leggings, and pink and white high tops. As Ramona left, she was seen speaking to some neighbors. Since Crystal was attending her brother's graduation, she planned on meeting Ramona at the dance in Hazleton, which is roughly 43 miles away from Smithers. When Ramona failed to arrive at the dance, initially, Crystal suspected that Ramona, you know, changed her plans and instead went to see her boyfriend in Morristown. On Sunday the 12th, Ramona's boyfriend called the Wilson home looking for her. Matilda told him that Ramona spent the night with her bestie, Crystal. And so, like... The article was kind of vague. The articles I read were kind of vague, but it was like um, a lot of playing telephone between the boyfriend, Crystal, and the mom, right? On that Sunday. But everybody kind of brushed it off like, meh, you know, she's probably spent the night again with Crystal or Crystal thought that, you know, who knows what so monday morning when crystal first noticed that ramona hadn't made it for first period she assumed that ramona had spent the night with her boyfriend and had missed the school bus but like by the end of the day when ramona still hadn't shown up to school crystal began to sweat bullets bitches as she should after school, while at her job, Crystal called Smitty's to see if Ramona had shown up for her shift as a dishwasher. When Crystal was told that was told no, she immediately contacted Matilda. When the Wilson family like found out, holy shit, Ramona wasn't with Crystal. she didn't show up to school. Nobody knows where she's at. The boyfriend in Morristown doesn't know where she's at. They immediately reported Ramona missing. However, the RCMP, coming for you, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police gave the Wilson family the ever problematic and cliche motherfucking dumpster juice uh run around insisting that there was probably absolutely nothing wrong Ramona probably just ran away and would eventually turn up because you don't want to do your goddamn job I said it I'm sorry I'm pissed every time you don't take a parent seriously when they say hey there's something wrong my kid is missing and I have to fucking retell it to the people I get really fucking pissed off I don't give a shit what country you're in fuck you If the parents know that this is not something that their child normally does, and you also know where this child lives, and you kind of know what's been going on in your area, you should be paying attention. Fuck you very much. End of rant. Hmm. Sorry, guys. So anyways, they gave the Wilson family the runaround, and they told told them that, you know, she'll probably turn up. But knowing that there was something absolutely wrong with the narrative that the RCMP were trying to feed them, the family immediately began searching for Ramona on their own, but to no avail. It wouldn't be until the following spring on April 9, 1995, when two teenagers riding ATVs in an old rugby field off Yellich Road behind the Smithers Airport and north of Highway 16, one of the teens got stuck in the mud. The teens walked into the nearby wooded area to search for something to pry the tire from the mud. Instead, they stumbled upon the remains of Ramona Wilson. While Ramona's sweatshirt and leggings were nearby, next to her body were nylon cables and a yellow rope. However, her pink and white sneakers were nowhere to be found. While RCMP have followed various avenues in pursuit to solving Ramona's murder, it continues to be unsolved 29 years later. I'm just saying. Annually, her family organizes a walk in June for Ramona, where they walk for Ramona and all of the other missing and murdered girls and women who have been preyed upon on what is now referred to as the Highway of Tears. (laughs) For our second case, we'll be traveling to a state that I hold close to my heart, North Carolina, to discuss what had happened to Faith Hedgepeth. Faith Danielle Hedgepeth was born September 26, 1992, to Roland and Connie Hedgepeth of Warrington, North Carolina. She was the couple's fourth child. Faith was a member of the Halawa Saponi tribe, which is a state recognized tribe that is traditionally from that area of North Carolina. When she was one, her parents divorced. As she grew up, she, like so many of us, dreamed of attending the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, <sighs> Go Tar Hills. In order to make her dreams of attending the university her father attended before dropping out and becoming the first member of her family to graduate from college, Faith excelled in school. The overall sweet and outgoing teenager juggled being an honor student, various extracurricular activities and organizations and clubs, as well as cheerleading. All of her hard work paid off when she was the recipient of a Gates Millennium Scholarship, which is a scholarship created by Bill and Melinda Gates. Recipients must display academic excellence, personal success, and exemplary leadership skills. Sitting in the top 10% of their graduating class, and the scholarship is for ethnically minor uh, minority students, To add to the joy of winning her highly deserved scholarship, she was also accepted into her top school, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. When Faith completed her undergraduate studies, she weighed studying to become an educator or or getting into the medical school program to become a pediatrician. While the first two years of college went well for Faith, she found she needed a break and took the spring semester of 2012 off. While most students choose to go back home during the summer months, Faith stayed in in the Chapel Hill area, getting back to her studies and living nearby in an off-campus apartment with her friend and classmate, Karina Rosario. While Faith was living with Karina, she was planning on moving into her own apartment in the fall once she had received her financial aid. Although she loved living with Karina, her best friend, since their freshman year, two's company and three's a crowd karina and her on and off boyfriend had a rough relationship which i'm sure was super difficult for faith to witness and comfort her friend through thursday september 6 2012 started off like any other day faith attended her classes And that evening at 545, she attended a rush event for the historically indigenous sorority Alpha Pi Omega that she wanted to join. Following the sorority event, Faith left to work on a paper about her tribe's history at about 715. Faith and her roommate went to the Davis Library on campus at 8 to study. While at the library, Faith exchanged text messages with her father, Roland, Um, about the Alpha Pi Omega Rush event she attended and her hopes of getting into the sorority. As the night went on, Faith and Karina went back to their apartment where they got dressed and went down down to downtown Chapel Hill nightclub, The Thrill, which is no longer open, arriving around 1240. The two danced for about an hour and a half before Karina began feeling ill, which led to the girls leaving the nightclub and going back to their apartment. The two arrived home at 3 a.m. Faith sent a few slightly incoherent text messages to an ex-boyfriend of Karina's, saying that Karina was sick and only he could take care of her, essentially. At about 4.25, after texting a fellow schoolmate, Karina slipped out of the apartment, believing that Faith was asleep, but failing to lock the door behind her as she left. When Karina woke up at about 10.30 on the morning of September 7th, like up that other person's room or apartment, she began trying to figure out how she was going to get back home. After calling Faith and getting no answer, she called another friend, Marisol, and asked her to give her a ride. It was shortly after 11 when Karina and Marisol arrived at the apartment. That Karina shared with Faith. When Karina called out to Faith. Because I'm sure like she got there. And she saw Karina's car in the parking lot. And she was like what the fuck. She was home. And she didn't answer my calls. So then she gets into the apartment. And she calls out to Faith. And she's hit with like this eerie silence. Like the only silence that there is. Is that eerie silence. When some fucked up shit has happened, and you've walked in on it afterwards, right? That kind of silence. So it was then that she walked into Faith's room, because she didn't hear anything. And she discovered Faith fatally bludgeoned, her, her fatally bludgeoned, partially nude body wrapped in a quilt. There were tons of questions and forensics the Chapel Hill Police Department went through, including, like, some really weird, odd clues, like there was a sandwich bag that had, like, a crude message scribbled on it, um, and it was, like, I'm not jealous, bitch, or something like that, um, that was, like, found on her bed, but everything completely dumbfounded detectives. It wouldn't be until September 16th, Two thousand twenty one, the Chapel Hill police would arrest Miguel Salguero Oliviares of Durham, North Carolina, on charges of the first degree murder of first, of Faith Hedge hedgepath. While he wasn't an initial suspect, his DNA pinged in CODIS after he was arrested for a drunk driving incident the month before and his DNA had been submitted. In January 2022, court documents stated that the DNA found at Faith's murder and the palm print found on the weapon he left at the scene were both a match. As of now, this is still an active case and he hasn't stood trial for Faith's murder. So I cannot say anything else, but we will absolutely be paying attention to what's going on with that. Our next story takes place in Minnesota within the Fond du Lac tribal community. Trina Louise St. Germain was born on September 12th, 1966 in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was described as being bubbly. Bubbly is is the word that was used to describe every woman outside of Pocahontas and and some things that and so wow and that's and, and she's the best dumples. Anyways, a sweet bubbly girl, she attended Humboldt High School before dropping out her senior year. When she was older, she moved to Cloquet, Minnesota following her divorce, so she and her children could be closer to her mother and family. A mother of three, Trina worked as a home health aide and blackjack dealer at the local casino. In January 1994, she married Sean Michael Langenbrunner, a a non-indigenous man from the area of Cloquet. After years of ups and downs, Sean and Trina separated in 2000. Um, And she and her children remained in Cloquet while Sean moved to Grand Rapids. On Saturday, September 2nd, 2000, Trina had spent her evening at a few bars on the reservation hanging out with her friends. Although she and Sean were separated, Trina really wanted to like fix things because she had an indiscretion and he found out and he was like, fuck this, I'm out. And she was like, nope, I really, really love you. Like, I really want to be with you. I really want to make this work. And so she was, like, super, like, laser focused on trying to rectify this with him and try to get her marriage back. So when she got home from hanging out at the bars with her friends A little bit after midnight, she began calling some other friends to ask for a ride to Grand Rapids. Unable to find a ride to Sean's at such a late hour, she decided, fuck it, I'll walk to Grand Rapids. As Trina walked down the road with her flashlight in hand, she attempted to hitchhike, which is something that she used to do. The first people to pull over told Trina that they weren't traveling as far as she wanted to go and told her that she should go home. Upset that they wouldn't give her a ride, Trina began walking onward into the night. When Trina couldn't be located the following day, her mother filed a missing persons report with a family member who worked for the Cloquet police. That same day, a real estate agent, who would often drive to his uncle's home to help him as he had aged and stuff, um, made the trek to northern Minnesota. Later that day, as he was driving from his uncle's, he took a scenic and nostalgic detour, uh, heading down a road that, like, he used to travel down as a teenager with his brother and stuff like that. So he's like, let me go down here. Let me see what's going on. Um... As he drove down the gravel road, he came upon a pile of clothing. As he drove closer, he realized he could be potentially driving up upon a deceased body. After assessing his surroundings and, you know, gaining his courage, he walked to the pile and discovered he had, in fact, found a dead woman's body. When he called 911, he informed them that she was cold to the touch, and he also believed that she was indigenous. When when the police arrived, they found that Trina had been lying on her back with her pants unzipped, exposing her underwear. Her shirt raised enough to expose several puncture wounds. Her eyes were severely beaten and an attempt to set fire on her body was made. (sighs) Police would interview and question all of the people in Trina's life trying to figure out what had happened to Trina, but eventually they would hit a brick wall and Trina's case would grow cold. For 10 years, Trina's family and the community of Cloquet looked over their shoulders at one another, wondering who could have possibly committed this heinous crime. Police would finally get the lead they needed on August 24th, 2010, when a man named Charlie told them that a man named Joseph Couture confided in him while drinking that he had killed Trina. Joseph said he'd picked Trina up while she was walking, and after Trina rejected him during the drive, Joseph killed Trina. To further back up the damning allegations Charlie made against Joseph, the police interviewed Joseph's ex-wife, Terry, who said on the night in question, her husband came home covered in blood. He burned his clothes and drove off on his ATV to dispose of the murder weapon. Joseph would then threaten to kill his wife if she said anything about his murdering Trina. Armed with these two leads, police tested Joseph's DNA, which was already in their system, against the DNA found at the crime scene. In June 2012, Joseph Couture was arrested and pleaded guilty to intentional second-degree murder, first-degree aiding and abetting, aggravated witness tampering, and aiding and abetting first-degree arson. Joseph was sentenced to 39 years with the earliest chance of release on September 7, 2038. Our next case takes us to Big Sky Country, where I'll be telling you what had happened on around Independence Day to Hannah Harris. Hannah Harris was born on May 5, 1992, to, to Matilda Harris of the Northern Cheyenne Tribe and Sam Long of the Lakota Tribe in Billings, Montana. As a girl, she was quite spunky, outgoing, and kind. And bubbly. She was known to take in those people whom it would seem everyone else rejected or forgot about. Her aunt would refer to them as her strays. As a teenager, Hannah would at times buck back at her mother's authority and would run away, but would always call her family, asking them to pick her up and bring her home. Spunky and loving, Hannah was a gem. After graduating high school, Hannah moved to Billings, which is two hours away from the reservation, to live with her boyfriend. Soon after the young couple moved in together, they became pregnant. On August 28th, 2012, the couple welcomed the birth of their son, Jeremiah. However, whatever steam was left in the relationship was soon to dissipate. By the end of June, 2013, the couple would, have, you know, separate completely. And Hannah would be gathering her 10 month old son and moving back to Lame Deer where her family welcomed her back with open arms. The 4th of July weekend was supposed to be busy with various events in Lame Deer starting with the annual fireworks display on the 3rd, moving on to the powwow on the 4th, followed by Hannah's sister's wedding reception which was highly anticipated as family from out of town were going to be able to attend because they were coming in town for the powwow as well. So it was just supposed to be just like an amazing weekend for the Harris family, you know, to come together and celebrate. Her big sister, Rose, who had just married, you know, a few weeks prior, but wanted to wait until the powwow weekend for her reception because she knew everybody was going to be in lame deer. Sorry, I need to take a couple sippity sips. So the doting single mother was especially looking forward to being able to let her hair down and party a little bit. Planning on enjoying herself at the fireworks display Hannah arranged for her uncle to babysit Jeremiah and set off to have fun. That night, her family said she was dancing and having a great time. The fireworks ended at midnight, but Hannah wasn't ready for the night to come to a close. The last Hannah was seen after watching fireworks was leaving Jimtown Bar, Uh with local transients Garrett Wada and Eugenia Gina Roland, The couple who were twice Hannah's age were members of the Lame Deer community. Hannah was known for taking in, the, taking in those in need. Just weeks before, Hannah had brought Gina uh, to her family's Father's Day barbecue, but it was weird to her family members that Hannah would be hanging out with Gina and Garrett. On the morning of July 4th, Matilda went to her job at the local gas station on the reservation. After clocking in for her 5 a.m. shift, her first customer informed her that Hannah's car was abandoned on Muddy Creek, a dead-end road miles away from her home uh, that sits at the edge of the reservation. When Matilda was able to get someone to check out the condition of Hannah's car, It was reported back to Matilda that the car had two flat tires. The family was hopeful that Hannah was able to just, like, get a ride home from that secluded area, but they were nervous and apprehensive, as many indigenous women in the area had met with foul play in recent years, including trafficking. When Hannah's sister Rose arrived in Lame Deer, she learned of Hannah's abandoned car, she immediately drove to her uncle's home where he was caring for Hannah's baby, who was, like, wailing in the background. And then uncle asked her immediately, like, where's your sister? But she didn't know. She had no answer. So the following day, when Hannah still failed to show up, this time for her sister Rose's reception, the family knew something was wrong. And poor Rose said that, like, she couldn't even eat her cake. Like, it broke my fucking heart, you guys. Because, like, she was like, I just knew, of all things, my sister was not going to miss my reception. And I was sitting there trying to put on a happy face and enjoy my reception. But I couldn't even eat my cake because I knew in my heart something was wrong with my sister. And that broke my heart. Mm, I am crying right now. Oof. So, like I said, she didn't show up and the family knew that there was something terribly wrong. On July 6th, the family found Gina at the trading post and asked her if she'd seen Hannah. Like, Matilda ran up on her because people talk a lot and, okay, so they called it, um, I don't even want to, it's like telephone but they said something about moccasins and this thing on ID and I don't remember exactly what it was. So I'm not going to try to repeat how the, how word gets passed quickly through this small community, but it's like faster than the internet. So people were whispering that Hannah was missing. They knew about the car being off in the cut and they told matilda yo she was she was seen with gina and garrett at you know the bar so like yo she's at the trading post so matilda and rose the real gangsters pulled up at the trading post and rolled up and gina comes out and matilda's like yo where's hannah and she's like oh Hannah has not come home yet. Question mark. Shrug emoji. And Matilda's like, hmm. Well, let me tell you something. What I know is that you were the last person seen with my daughter. So, guess what? We got to go down to the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And we need to make a report. Okay? So, or local police. I don't remember if it was local police or it was BIA, but... They go, and they, like, yo, you gotta make a statement because you were the last one seen. So, they take her in. Gina gives a little la- a little bullshit statement. But afterwards, she's trying to dash. And Matilda is insisting, because she is that mama, and I love her for that, that the police search Hannah's abandoned car, and you bring Gina with you. Now this is this is a part where oh my gosh. So this let me set the scene for you. Baby Jeremiah is in the back seat. Gina is in the back seat next to baby Jeremiah. Rose is either driving or in the passenger seat and Matilda is next to her. I I think Matilda was driving and Rose is in the passenger seat. Whatever. Matilda said it took everything in her not to lose her cool because Gina is in the back seat of the car cooing at baby Jeremiah and whatnot. And it just didn't sit right with her spirit. So they all arrive to Muddy Creek and they get to the car And the officers gave the car a quick once-over before determining that there were no signs of foul play. (coughs) Excuse me. And then, they just left. Pew! So, the ladies are all standing there, baby Jeremiah. And Rose and Matilda have to, like, they're like, shit. They didn't even pop the trunk. So they look at each other and they embrace themselves because they don't know what's what. What they could, f- they're hoping for the best, but they know that they could find the worst. They open the trunk of Hannah's car, and she's not there. It's empty. Whew. Which is good, but after finding the trunk empty. Also, because this was the 4th of July weekend, time frame, powwow, all this other stuff was going on, officers told Matilda that they were stretched with resources, and so if they wanted to search for Hannah, they could absolutely go ahead and do it, but they were on their own until Monday. (sighs) So... With that being said, a search party was assembled amongst the community. Ground zero of the search party was where Hannah's car was left. On June 7th, Gina and Garrett showed up to the search party. They attempted to manipulate the area that the searchers were planning to look at. When Matilda caught wind of this, uh, she told them, you gotta leave. Now, after being told to leave, Garrett and Gina left Montana. Like, Garrett left to Wyoming, and Gina went to South Dakota, where they both have family. On Monday, July 8th, with law enforcement freed up following the weekend powwow festivities, the BIA and FBI teamed up um, with searchers to find Hannah. The first piece of evidence was found... Uh, The first piece of evidence found was Hannah's black and white Nike sneaker, which was located roughly 50 yards away from a trailer that had been searched the previous day, but it was found to be empty. Well, it wasn't empty. It was like a shit show, but it was devoid of humans. A few hours later, as the search continued into the woods near the rodeo grounds, Hannah's severely decomposed and half-dressed remains were discovered. Hannah's body was so badly decomposed, it was impossible to collect DNA samples. With her body recovered, the police focused on their primary suspects, Gina and Garrett. Nearly nine months following Hannah's murder, the couple were arrested after Gina's sister-in-law reported Gina's confession to the FBI. After drinking while drinking one night, Gina told her sister-in-law that in the wee hours of the 4th of July, the trio, Gina, Garrett, and Hannah were partying in an abandoned trailer. Gina said that she blacked out drunk but came to when she heard Hannah screaming and saw Garrett was raping her. Initially, she said she tried to help Hannah. However, when Hannah struck Gina, Gina snapped, flying into a rage and killing Hannah. After murdering Hannah, the couple wrapped her body in a sheet and Garrett disposed of her. Prior to going to trial, both Gina and Garrett, who were to be tried separately, made plea deals. Gina was sentenced to 22 years in federal prison after pleading guilty. To second degree murder, while Garrett was sentenced to 10 years in prison for accessory of, to murder after the fact for dumping Hannah's body. Although Garrett was scheduled to be released January 2023, he died November 2022. Since Hannah's brutal murder, Hannah's act was passed in 2018, authorizing Montana Department of Justice to assist local law enforcement in missing persons cases. Annually, Hannah, along with countless others, are remembered on her birthday, May 5th, which is Missing or Murdered Indigenous People Awareness Day. (sighs) And finally, our last case keeps us in Big Sky Country but takes us to the Crow Agency where I'll be discussing what had happened to Roy Lynn's ride horse, rides horse, Brightwings. Roy Lynn, Lynn for short, Louise Rides Horse, Brightwings, was born January 8, 1988 to Roy Rides Horse Sr. and Ernestine Pretty Weasel in Sheridan, Wyoming. Little is known about her upbringing, however, she was a caring and nurturing woman who wanted to become a nurse practitioner and work with babies because she adored children. She loved children so much, she became a mother to six children. She had a tumultuous relationship with a man named Eric, who was physically abusive and also, you know, they bickered when he was also one, I don't know, I don't know about the, the father situation, but for sure he was the youngest child's father, that's all I know, um, anywho, um, he had, like, a streak of jealousy and stuff like that, and she was such a sweet girl, and, you know, at 28 years old, you know, she was just out here living her life, just trying to be a good person, and trying to make this relationship work. On the night of April 16th, 2016, the couple were at a local saloon, and the name of said saloon is up in the air. I have heard that it is Kirby Saloon. It is referenced as the Killfeather Saloon in an ID episode of Dead Silent. Yes. So, I don't know. I couldn't find it under this name, but I found another one that seemed to be the one. And then I found an article referencing it as the Kirby. So whatever, I don't know. But anywho, she was at a saloon with her old man. The couple had been arguing throughout the night when finally Eric walked out on Lynn, abandoning her at the saloon. As she sat at the bar crying, Lynn began asking patrons for a ride home. Now, from what I gleaned, this bar was in between Crow and Northern Cheyenne Reservations. And it was like a nice drive to like Crow, I think it was like an hour or so. And, like, I don't remember what the distance was from this bar to Northern Cheyenne, but, like, you know what I mean? Two different reservations, and this guy was dead in the middle, and there was no other place for people to come together and water hole from both sides. Huh. So, anywho, you know, she's crying and she's asking patrons for a ride home. Finally, she saw Angelica Whiteman and her boyfriend, Dimzario Sanchez. Through tears, Lynn asked Angelica for a ride home and Angelica said yes. When asked where she was going, she told them she lived in Crow Agency. Although they were going to Northern Cheyenne Reservation, they said taking her to Crow Agency wouldn't be a problem. When the three exited the saloon, they met up with Frank Sanchez, Dimzario's half brother, in the parking lot. The four left the saloon and piled into the car. As they were driving, Angelica was, you know, like doing playing with her hair and her makeup and stuff in the car's vanity mirror. When she looked at herself in the mirror, she saw Lynn staring back at her, which totally infuriated the inebriated angelica she asked lynn what she was looking at and lynn said you know i'm I'm not i'm not looking at anything like i'm not staring at anything you know like frankly lynn was probably back there in a daze trying to figure out how to make things work with eric what the fuck had happened and like just wanting to get home she was probably also like Oh, wow. She's pretty. You know what I mean? Her eye must look a mess. You know what I mean? Like, there was no ill intent behind Lynn sitting behind you and happening to have her reflection reflecting in the same mirror that your face is reflecting in. But this young lady, nope. She didn't like that. And she also didn't like Lynn's answer. This... Further pissed off Angelica, who turned around and began like beating Lynn up. Angelica then told Dimzario, quote, this bitch can walk back to Crow. Soon Dimzario stopped the car on Castle Rock Road and the fight continued onto the gravel road. Unsatisfied with the beating Angelica was giving Lynn, who was like totally like incapacitated, like she could not fucking fight back, okay? Um, it had escalated to strangulation, and then Dimzario is standing there and he grabs a bandana and he's like, Yo, you're not doing it right. Let me show you how it's done, one and done, and then you need to finish what you started. After strangling her for a while. Frank pipes in and tells Angelica Lynn was still breathing. She was just unconscious. Frank strips Lynn naked and then following Dimzario's orders, Frank grabbed the gas can from the trunk of the car. Angelica said she witnessed Demsario douse Lynn with gas. However, she didn't see which brother lit Lynn on fire. After driving away into the night, Lynn managed to walk three miles from the area she was attacked down Castle Rock Road before collapsing. Fourteen hours later, a rancher just so happened to pull over on Castle Rock Road to relieve himself when he found Lynn's body badly burned on the side of the road. After assessing her wounds were far too bad to transport her to help himself, he managed to flag down... A car and it happened to be a BIA agent. When Lynn was first rushed to the Crow Agency Hospital, initially they were unable to determine if Lynn was male or female due to the severity of her burns. Because Lynn inhaled the gas when she was lit on fire, she sustained serious second and third degree burns as well as burns internally which prevented staff from clearing her airwaves in addition to the severe burns and beating lynn had sustained she also suffered from frostbite as it was in the 20s the night of her attack throughout the emergency triage lynn was receiving Was receiving, she continued to swell due to the burns, so the staff had to make incisions with scalpels around her head, neck, arms, and chest to alleviate the pressure and help regain her pulse and stabilize her. While in the emergency care of the staff at Crow Agency, she told doctors she knew who hurt her. She was then flown to Salt Lake City, Utah, where she was admitted to the University of Utah Hospital Burn Unit. It was assessed at that time that Lynn had sustained second and third degree burns covering 45% of her body. In her hideous attack, Lynn lost her nose and lips as well as her complete eyesight in one eye with very little left remaining in her other. She was subjected to surgeries three times a day. At one point, due to the severe hypothermia Lynn sustained on her feet, she needed to undergo amputation of both feet. Throughout this time, her family and community remained hopeful she would pull through. While Lynn was fighting for her life in Utah, police in Montana were retracing Lynn's steps the night she was hideously attacked. Initially, authorities and Lynn's family thought Eric was the person who attacked Lynn. After a tense standoff at his home, authorities brought Eric in for questioning. It was during the questioning that Eric learned of the attempted murder of Lynn. After he was cleared of any wrongdoing, he left the reservation, never even asking about Lynn's condition. Back at square one, the authorities decided to look further at who else Lynn may have come into contact with that night at the saloon. After a bit of technical difficulties, authorities were able to see Lynn's interaction with Angelica and Dimzario on, like, the surveillance video from the saloon. Angelica was apprehended on May 11th, 2016 and the sanchez brothers were taken into custody by federal authorities on june 22, 2016 after two months of fighting doctors recognized that lynn was dying she made a dying declaration on her deathbed about the events that led to her final dying moments and on june 28, 2016 she died the three co-defendants were all tried separately in March 2017, Frank Sanchez pleaded guilty to accessory after the fact and to imprison of a felony. He was sentenced to nine years in prison and three years of supervised release. He was ordered to repay $14,276.72 in restitution. Angelica Whiteman pleaded guilty in August 2017, where she was sentenced to 40 years in prison with five years supervised release for aiding and abetting first-degree murder. She was also ordered to pay $14,276.72 in restitution. Finally, in December 2017, Demzario Sanchez was convicted by a jury of, of first-degree murder, aiding and abetting in murder. He was sentenced to life in prison with 5 years supervised release and also ordered to pay $14,276.72 in restitution. The three have never given a concrete answer as to why they murdered Lynn, only stating that they were all intoxicated. So, what had happened since... On record at least 1492 because I don't feel like going back and pulling Viking records and everybody else. When Christopher Columbus and his pack of vagrants on the Nina Penta and Santa Maria landed in Hispaniola. Raping, pillaging, and plundering through the indigenous people of what we now know as Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Transferring over to the colonists. And... Massachusetts and down in Virginia so on and so forth continuing throughout history what had happened is this it continues to happen I have no it continues to happen it continues to happen it continues to happen it needs to fucking stop um it's the disproportionate rate of trafficking Especially through Montana. Um, There's certain parts of the country, you know, where you just have these huge arteries, these highways you've got that go into Canada, so on and so forth. Trafficking, raping, murdering of indigenous women in Alaska, as well as Canada, Canada. It's insane. I really tried hard to hit as many sections of the country and cover different tribes. As I said when I was talking about Ramona Wilson, a lot of it could be a serial killer. It could be a random act of violence with an outsider. It could be someone you know within your community. It could be someone of your ethnicity but of a different tribal origin who doesn't fuck with you because you are from a different tribe. There are many variables. All of them suck. And I thought it was really important to get this episode out um, prior to uh, the 5th, which is Friday, where we absolutely will remember Hannah Harris, who would have been 31 this year, and all of the other missing and murdered indigenous people that continue to go missing. A lot of states have now finally begun issuing uh, amber alerts, if you will, missing, person, missing indigenous person alerts. Um, if you live in certain states, um, you will absolutely get your phone buzzing. And we need, the problem is this. A lo- there's a lot of problems. But my main problem is this. I understand historically why there is this disconnection between federal government in the United States um and our local law enforcement and the sovereignty that our reservations they are sovereign pieces of land that operate with their own sets of rules, regulations, and um, authority. They are the ones who have to reach out to local non-Indigenous law enforcement agencies and federal agencies for assistance. Um, They are undermanned. I can't remember the statistics, but... I want to say between Northern Cheyenne and Crow, I saw in a documentary at one point, they had like 12 people working and they're working like 24 hour shifts. So they're burnt out, they're undermanned, people don't want to do the job There are millions of acres of land to cover. A lot of it is uninhabited as well. Um, There's so many different layers to this. Um, But because of how the government has fucked indigenous people over, pardon my French, I know I've thrown out that bomb a billion times tonight. but, But seriously, understanding historically how ugly as a country we have treated indigenous people it is very understandable why there is a disconnect and a mistrust with us um when it comes to seeking help with our you know various law enforcement agencies where you can get more boots on the ground, you can get more technological advances in sleuthing and shit. I don't know. Policing. Um, all of that stuff. But you have to reach out for that help. And a lot of times it just isn't happening. And so I feel like we have to call everyone within these nations to to task to see what we can do because there are many allies out here many you know agencies who want to help who are willing to to lend assistance if need be so I think there has to be some, some kind of discussion where we try to figure out where we can come to peace, come to a sense of peace where we can work this out, where we can get assistance so that we can curtail some of these people who are, you know, coming in. The other problem is this if you are a non-indigenous person and you come onto tribal land and you commit a crime, there's nothing that the people on the outside can do. There's a lot of... There's a lot of red tape and legalese that needs to be worked out. The women and children and men, the people of these communities... Need to be protected. Period. They need to be protected. Protect yourselves. As a community. And be protected. By the people. Outside. Of your land. Like. That's the only way. That we are going to be able. To slow these numbers down to a grinding halt (sighs) I mean like I could go through each and every one of these cases and tell you exactly how nobody did anything wrong and none of these none of these women asked or called for any of these things to happen all of these things were atrocious all of these things were hideous um but all I can say really is do better and do better that's all we can do is do better as people and try to protect the people within these communities because this is just ridiculous it's heartbreaking because they they, the voices go unheard it's heartbreaking because you hear these stories And you're like, why didn't I ever hear that? But you hear about a million other things. And at what point are our voices going to be muted so that we can hear the screams coming from these people asking for help? And we're willing to to shut the fuck up listen and respond i got nothing else i'm sorry i'm really like out of it for this one um i've got absolutely the next episode slated it will be dropping very soon this month i promise love you guys missed you i'll be back very soon with another episode no i don't even need outro music tonight it's, you know, who needs it? I don't. Do you? I'm Kimberly. I'll see you in a few days. Welcome back to What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. We'll see you soon. Have a great night.